Hi, and welcome to Marketing Talks, where we uncover insights from business owners and marketing professionals. Today, I am welcoming a very special guest to the show. Richard Beasley is the owner and chief craftsman of Wickerworks, a cane and wicker furniture restoration business based in Adelaide, South Australia. He also happens to be my dad. We'll be talking about how Richard found his niche, turned it into a thriving business of more than 36 years. We'll also explore how he's managed to innovate over the years and how the internet has opened new doors to new opportunities. Today's show will be interesting for anyone who is trying to find their niche, how to become an expert in that niche, and why innovation is key to business success. Okay, let's jump in. So, welcome to Marketing Talks. Thanks for joining. That's good, good to talk to you, Greg. Yes, likewise, Richard Beasley. It's very weird to say that. No, I'm going to start because I'm super excited to have this call with you. Not just because you're my father, but also because you're actually the person who got me into online marketing. So really? You never you told are, me that. You are. Believe it or not, you are the person who got me into this space. So I really appreciate that. And so you have a really interesting story and background to your business. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about what Wickerworks is and and how you came about finding your niche in the cane and wicker restoration space. Well, basically it was by accident because an old friend of ours at the time was asking me to relocate his business. And whilst I was there, he showed me a couple of old Bentwick chairs, which I've had a little bit of experience with whilst I was living in Holland in the business over there in furniture restoration game. So I said, yep, I'll help you out. And it's the first time I've ever done anything like that. I always put my hand up for something like that. So that restoration started way back 36 odd years ago. And I just found my passion first. It wasn't a niche. I never, th- I never okay. even heard of a niche word. I never heard of that for a business. I wasn't yeah. even looking for a business. And then it kind of grew gradually to an extent where I found that I could make it a niche business. So that's how it kind of started all those many years ago. It's quite a, a strange niche to just fall into. Is, what was the process? Can you go into a bit more detail? Like what made you land on Wicker? Well, I've often thought about that myself. The only <laughs> thing I can think of is that my very first recollection of it was whilst living in Holland and I was in the building trade then, so I was hands-on anyway, I used yeah. to ride my bike home along the top of the dike towards my home and there was one little area where I used to look down and on of the late evening the lights were on and there was this seemed to me fairly old guy then he was probably younger than I am now but he was weaving a basket and I used to sit there for a couple of minutes on my bike and I was just kind of fascinated watching him through the window I mean he could see me but uh, because it was a bit too dark but I could just watch him doing it and I think maybe that was the first kind of thought that was embedded in my brain then that I might be interested in that kind of career. I, I had no idea. Yeah. And then the second, there was another time was we had, as you know, an old cottage in Holland yeah. and we had the roof rethatched and I was in awe watching this guy thatch a roof. So wow. who knows whether that came from there? Uh, I, yeah. I really don't know. But if you had said to me, from then and there to the day I started doing Kane and Wicker, you're going to have a business in this field. I would have laughed at you because it it just didn't mean anything to me. So it kind of 
fell onto my lap, I guess, and I enjoyed it. That's the biggest part. I enjoyed mm. doing the renovation and restoration work and the cane bit seemed to come with it. And I just got a fascination for it, as you know, Greg, and that was it. And yeah. The rest is history. I kept pursuing it all that time. That's so good. I, I mean, I think, I think anyone can be really blessed to find their passion. I think it's a, quite often a real big challenge for a lot of people to do that. Okay. So you found your craft or your niche, so to speak, mm -hmm. but how niche is that niche? How many people in Australia do what you do? Well, at the time, I guess there was a good handful or more, especially around Adelaide, South Australia, where I'm from. I couldn't really answer about the rest of Australia, but there was a lot of cane shops, retail shops around the place and selling from baskets to furniture, of course. But gradually over the years, I think the trend disappeared a little bit. You either it became more upmarket furniture and all the cheaper kind of furniture and baskets kind of disappeared. And then you've got the larger companies coming in and we've got, as you know, here, Harvey Normans and you've got Ikea, those sort of companies started coming and they brought their own products in, which probably killed a lot of the smaller businesses. Mm. So to answer your question, really, I think there may have been, as I say, about a handful of people doing a little bit of cane work. There were a few antique dealers around that I know that did some of it, but there wasn't a business in it. And that's kind of what opened my eyes. I thought, right, I initially drove around to as many antique shops and dealers I could, handing my terrible little business card I had, I made up, and I got good feedback. So I thought, okay, I do the right thing. I do the good job as best I can. I got a few jobs out of it and it just grew from there. Mm. So, but now there's very few of us. A lot of them have either passed away or the businesses have gone through the loop or just no demand, minimum demand for it. We used to have the blind welfare that used to do a lot of caning work and basket weaving, but there was no money in it. And then the older generation people that used to do that obviously eventually passed away and there was no one new coming in to teach it. Mm. So I think it's definitely become a niche market for myself. There's only two others I know or three others I know in the whole of Australia that do some of the work that I do, but certainly not the amount of work that I do. There might be one yeah. other that I know that, has had his business for probably as much as long as I have, if not longer, he inherited okay. it from his father. So he's quite good at what he does, but he hasn't got a good website. I can tell that. So I drive a lot of traffic to my website where he doesn't. So I actually yeah. don't just get work from South Australia, but it comes from all over Australia. And the world, right? The world, in fact, yeah. Now I'm having jobs come in from the States and Canada. I've done a couple of jobs yep. for sent to England, New Zealand. Yep. That's good. Really good. Do you think it's a dying niche or do you think that will always have some sort of presence in the world? The restoration will always be there in, in this kind of business. It's whether the person, I mean, if I were to kick the bucket tomorrow, which touch wood, it won't happen, but there's no one that's going to take over. So if someone's passionate as much as I am about 
this business, they could make a good career out of it and they can naturally expand on that. But there's lots of other avenues you can expand on. Yeah. But that's, yeah, it's one of those things that I could have a really good business, but to find someone that might be suitable to want to take it on, that's another story. I was always really fascinated when you said that you're getting clients from around the world sending you work to restore. So tell me, what are some of the most interesting projects you've worked on since being in your business? Oh, gosh, I think I could write a book about all the different things. It's quite, quite amazing. I mean, I naturally, I've done a lot of prams, Dolce prams over the years. They've, they've been fascinating to do because there's a lot of history with them. There's a lot of sentimental value with prams. Mums bring me these dilapidated prams that I've had in the garage. And all of a sudden, they've got a granddaughter on the way and they want to have it restored and it brings back a lot of, in many cases, a lot of memories mm. for those ladies that kind of start reminiscing and thinking about their past when they see their pram restored. That's rewarding. And knowing it's going to last for another hundred years. But the most interesting ones I've done really is I do vintage umbrella holders for people that have got enthusiasts that own these fantastic vintage cars. <laughs> and so they want a made award of umbrella hold i've done one just recently went back over to the states and it's for a 1903 or something like that stanley steam driven car and it's his pride and joy it's, i've seen the pictures he's, he's absolutely blown away by this now he's then he wanted some vintage umbrellas to go with it and i just gave him a link online and he said yeah my wife's bought some of them now that's great so that gives me a real buzz many years ago I had a guy come to me and he asked if I was interested in making a pilot seat for him for a vintage Sopwith World War One biplane. I, I thought he was a tire kicker, one of these guys that just, I don't know, asking me silly questions. But anyway, long and short of it, he sent me some drawings and I thought, yeah, this sounds good. So I made one of them, didn't hear any much of it. It was quite, quite uh, difficult to do, to steam bend the cane and make this. And I made it directly from the old drawings that he gave me, which were all classified information in those days. Hmm. Anyway, didn't hear much from him. And then I thought, I know what I might do. When I had my website built, I decided to put a page on there about World War I vintage pilot seats, just to say that I've done one. And all of a sudden, they all started coming in. <laughs> a couple from New Zealand asked me to do some. And, and then the rest were from the US, Canada, England, a couple more here in Australia. I don't get a lot to, of them, but not that I want a lot, you know, I don't want to be manufacturing them, but they're all yeah. separately individually made. So they're all got a slight uniqueness about them. So I've done a few of them, which I quite enjoy. Vintage yeah. hampers, baskets to go back onto the vintage cars, anything that's got to be slightly different that you're not going to get off the shelf, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. But the best one, as you know, would have been the vintage car. When I had this yeah. guy from Castle, Maine, Victoria, he bought this chassis, vintage, I think it was called a Beacon, a 1913 vintage chassis with a chipboard plywood body on it and a two-stroke engine. It was quite a funny little thing. And it was his dream. He was about the same age as me, maybe two or three years younger, but it was his dream, God knows where it came from, to have a vintage car, but with a wicker body. He'd seen a few pictures. Huh. Yeah. So he approached me, 
I gave him some drawings how I think it could have been done and I did a bit of research and anyway eventually he brought it over he drove it over from Victoria and I think I spent about three and a half months on it not continuously but it was over the Christmas and New Year period where we had a bit of a break so I got stuck into it that way thoroughly enjoyed it it was the biggest challenge ever it was uh, very time consuming and I had to make the base, the body, sorry, the, the floorboards up, which had to fit over the clutch and gearbox area and the pedals and the steering. It was a full on job. But anyway, I did that. And what made my day was when he came and saw it, you'd already seen a few pictures when I finished it, but what made my day, he came in, opened the garage door, saw it for the first time, touched it and shed a tear. And this, this is because it meant so much to him. And that means a lot to me. That's the buzz and pride I get out of it. Yeah. And uh, we wrapped it all up, turned it back on. And he's, it's like a little chitty chitty bang bang, only all yeah. made out of wicket. It's, it's <laughs> fascinating. So, yeah, that was, I thought, gee, if I can do that, then I should be able to do anything. But it was a learning curve. Everything's a learning curve of me because you don't get these things come on your lap every five minutes of the day. So sure. it's been enjoyable. And Wicker Sidecars for motorbikes is another one I do. Got a couple of them wow. coming in next year. So it's, it's those it's sort of things I really enjoy doing. Yeah, because it's like, I think most people would think of Kane and Wicker Restoration as like basic chairs, like seats and no. maybe some lounge chairs and things like that. But but there's Kane in so many different things. I mean, when you told me about the, the plane chassis, I was like, I, I couldn't even believe it that, that <laughs> something like that would exist. But you've also done a lot of uh, hot air balloon baskets. I mean, they're, oh, they're yeah, typically yeah. cane-based, right? Um, yeah, they're all made out of solid rattan. Yeah. Uh, to actually make them, you have to have a proper license to do them. And I haven't got that. There's, there's a couple of people in, in uh, somewhere in New South Wales, I think, that actually all they do is that. Whether they're still around, I don't really know because the markets change you know people sometimes source it offshore because it's cheaper because mm -hmm. it's very labor intensive and it's very hard on your hands to do mm -hmm. but yeah we had we kind of had a bit of a contract with the Barossa Valley bloom baskets adventure baskets that were up here in the Barossa Valley and they got as you know well you do know because I remember you've been with us when we had a rough landing one day and so yeah some of those blooms do get a bit of rough landings and consequently it's only the wicket that gets perished the timber frames seem to be pretty good it's still one of the most safest way to fly around the countryside i suppose but the baskets yeah. just need a bit of weaving in the bottom just to get rid of the the broken bits here and there so yeah i did a few yeah. of them over the years that's so cool yeah, it's interesting. i love that i love that maybe we can go back to the business side of things so sure yeah what have been some of the most challenging parts of running your business finding enough hours in a day sometimes is challenging but i guess really sometimes it was sourcing the materials mm -hmm. to get the right materials for their jobs at the time early in the days there was a supplier which was good but it wasn't regular so that was that sometimes was a bit challenging to source the correct materials because as the trade or the industry sort of started dying out a little bit because we had a couple of manufacturers here in South Australia that used to buy in materials to 
help with what they call knockdown furniture. So they buy the knockdown furniture, import that, and then they use the binding and rattan to dress the chairs up. They did that themselves here. But as they started totally importing furniture rather than just doing the work here, that industry of supplying materials started dwindling down. And of course you had the blind welfare that used to buy a fair bit, a lot of schools, a lot of nursing homes um, used to buy a bit of material. So as they started disappearing because there was no one teaching it, the supplier decided, well, you know, maybe enough's enough. We've got to hang our boots up and we, we may not be in business much longer. So that was the time when I started importing directly myself. So that was a challenging time. Did you have to go to the actual manufacturer to source the material? Uh, eventually, as the business grew, I started going to Cebu in the Philippines to buy in furniture and baskets because I ended up expanding the business and we having a retail outlet and we yeah. started wholesaling and that was very good, a lot of fun. And, and because I was importing the furniture, it was an opportunity to put in the containers, some raw materials. So right. that's how it kind of, you know, fill the gaps up a little bit. Yeah. I think my biggest challenge was, unfortunately, I didn't have an education like you have in marketing. I was a little bit green on managing a, a shop. So with not having that under my belt, I think it became slow and costly. Advertising is costly. Overheads can be extremely expensive. So not having a good budget. So they're the challenges I think I faced. But I think what got me through all that was, I guess, to keep on going. I just enjoyed my passion. I'd get up in the morning and and love going to work. So I get all yeah. the job done. Even though I had retail and, and restoration going, and we did a bit of manufacturing, the actual restoration side of Wickerworks, which I call it now, used to be called Kane and Bentwood Repair Service, but always supplied me work. So I kept nurturing that. You know, retail goes up and down, but the restoration mm -hmm. was constantly there all yeah. the time. So you've got those basic uh, like brewer chairs. So with a machine woven cane in the seat and a lot of people have probably seen them. They might not know what they're called, but I was always fascinated by how many of those chairs you'd get every week. How many of those types of chairs do you get on, in, on a weekly basis? In the basis good days, <clears throat> in the good days, because when you think of it, like kind of every man and his dog had a bentwood chair in their home somewhere. And the right. Brewer Seska chairs, which is what you're referring to, a lot of cafes and restaurants own them too. And the recaining of seats in those days, we'd average, and I'm not joking, we'd average between 45 and 50 seats a week. Yeah. And it used to take three days for four of us, as you can remember, yeah. you and your brother Roger and our little fellow called Oscar, as you probably remember, we'd Thursday nights, we'd get the pizzas in and yep. we route it and make lots of noise and crank the music up and we get all the dirty, dusty work done. And then the next day, Oscar and myself would do all the cane work. And then yep. the third day, they'd be all polished, ready to go out. But that was, yeah, I kid you not, there was an average 45 to 50 seats a week constantly and that only left us two other days a week where we do other restoration work 
and other parts of the business. So yeah. it was mind boggling. Yeah. And, and that's mostly from South Australia, right? Or that was, was only that... South Australia. Yeah. That's incredible. That, that was only South Australia. Now and again, you might got someone that hear about you. Cause don't forget, we didn't have the internet then. Of uh, course. Wasn't. Yeah. We didn't have that. Yeah. To think that there was that many seats being broken on a weekly basis and that many people were thinking I should get that repaired and that many people actually finding someone to repair it and mm. then taking it in. There's a whole bunch mm. of steps to get to that, <laughs> to that stage. That's right. And that's right. That's incredible. And I mean, I, I think, I guess what probably helped was during that time, you know, you had like freedom furniture and a bunch of other larger furniture companies that were selling a lot of these chairs. So it was more in, in fashion, I suppose. That's right. That's um, right. And, and perhaps you don't see that as often these days, but I've noticed particularly, I always keep an eye out for these things as well because I've grown up with it, but it's a very fashionable thing. Like wicker and cane products just seem to pop up every now and then. You're like, Oh, I haven't seen that for a while. Or, you know, I start seeing it on Instagram, for example, or well, exactly. you know, in random, like, random craft stores or furniture stores i'm like wow it's almost like a, a yeah like a sub niche type fashionable thing to have some type of wicker furniture in your house yeah but it's kind of like an accessory now to have anything with rattan in like yeah even ikea starting to do it now only about six to eight months ago i guess there was a fella on instagram who put up a post who got a cupboard. He took a photograph of an antique cupboard that had rattan, very fine timber and lovely rattan doors. <clears throat> and he says, oh, that's priced at two and a half, three thousand dollars or some, something like that. So he said, but I can go to Ikea and buy something very similar with glass doors, mm. take the glass out and fit rattan on and Bob's your uncle. I've got a lookalike cupboard that's worth $2,000. So he said, yeah. I just need to source the return. That Instagram post, people had bought cane off of me and told this fella that this is where they bought the cane. And naturally, the fella was actually in the States, but he had a little big following. He had quite a few jobs that came via that post, I guess, sourcing the materials. So it's not wow. just doing the restoration work in cane seats that I do, I'm now supplying the raw materials for people yeah. that want to do that. And that's what's expanded in the last probably a good three years ago. Yeah. And it hasn't stopped. In fact, now that takes almost 70% of our business is just supplying materials and the other 30% or 25% roughly is restoration yeah. work. So I'm spending less time on restoration work, which is good because my hands get a bit tired after a while. It just shows from going from 40 seats a week, then down to say down sometimes between eight and 10, sometimes 15 seats a week. I've employed someone else to do that part for me, which is good, but it frees me up now time to do the things I really like doing, like the car bodies, if yeah, I get another yeah. one of them or something different. But there's two to three days a week where I'm just sending parcels. And that's the good fun about this business because you can diversify. You can yeah. change it to tweak it, whatever the fashion where the trend is. 
of course. So, yeah. yeah, follow the trend as your friend, they say. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting that of how the business has evolved over the years. I mean, you said you've been yeah. in business for 36 odd years. Now, you know, with the influx of the internet, you have all of a sudden this world market that you can now reach. And, and you're probably only reaching a very small part of it, but there's oh, so am. many people in the world that are probably really looking hard for, for people like yourself or don't actually know that people like yourself exist. So well, I give yeah, an example of that using social media. I've got a Facebook group, Kane and Wicker Furniture Restoration. And there was a guy visiting Austria. He was actually from Germany, but he was visiting Austria for a holiday, walking down a little lane street in the middle of Austria. And he saw a sign saying um, chair caning. And the fella happened to be outside, got talking to him. The guy that was on holiday, who's a German anyway, said, I've got this lovely old chair, been in the family for years and years. I'd love to get it recaned. The yes. trouble is, he said, I'm not living here. I live in Australia. So the fellow running the shop turned and said, ah, oh, that's no problem. I can put you in touch with Richard, the Wicker Guru in South Australia. Actually, he didn't say South Australia, he said just Australia. But the guy was gobsmacked and said, what do you mean? He said, oh, he's on a Facebook group. We know him pretty well. And he gave him my details. I got in contact with him. And when the fellow eventually came back to Australia, um, he phoned me up and told me that story. And he said, whereabouts are you? I said, I'm here in Adelaide. I said, well, that's unbelievable because I'm just down the road called Seacombe Garden. So, hmm. and that's how that kind of thing works. And we've had a few jobs similar to that, how Facebook and how the, the web just is, is mind blowing. And I've given him a few jobs. So people contact me on Wickerworks yeah. and they, they're in Italy somewhere and they don't know of anyone. So I put him in touch with him. And, you know, and so it goes, it's, it's fascinating. That's crazy. And for anyone who's not aware of the distances, so Seacombe Gardens is probably five minutes away from where exactly. you exactly exactly makes it even stranger. It is. It's <laughs> <laughs> fascinating. So maybe we can go back a little bit more uh, towards the start of your, your businesses. I wanted to understand, did you ever have times when you weren't sure where your next customer would come from? There was a few in the restoration side of it. Very, very few times. I think I could be, I could quite easily say maybe four times that it ever happened. One was naturally when there was a recession here, people obviously weren't spending money on the furniture. They'd rather spend the money on groceries. I understand that, but that hit everyone. And when I had the retail side selling furniture, that's quite seasonal because people only want furniture in summer more than in the winter. So there were a few times when naturally lack of my marketing skills that I wasn't getting enough traffic through the front door to, to sell the furniture. So that was, that was a bit tough sometimes, but as I said before, the furniture, restoration always kept going so i kept pursuing that there's always something to do and when it got a little bit quiet instead of advertising and paying money out because sometimes you don't always get that back the return isn't always as good as what you think it is 
I uh, produced my own flyers and I used to drive around the affluent area of Adelaide and did personal letterbox drops and I used to take my van. If I saw something in the front conservatory, I'd go and knock on the door and I'd say, I'm here in the neighbourhood and I'd go back with a van full of furniture all the time. Wow. So wow. after two or three times like that, in fact, I threw a load of folders away years ago where I think I printed some like 200 flyers and I only got rid of 150. So, yeah. yeah. That's um, really that's really interesting because I was going to ask, uh, like, how has marketing played a role in, in the success of Wickerworks? And, I mean, you're probably saying that this is, the letterbox drop stuff is probably well before the internet sort of thing exactly. was around. It was. But yeah. it's obvi- it obviously really worked. And, and, I mean, it was huge back then as a form of uh, direct mail, I suppose. I suppose yeah. So. But what what else have you tried in the past? From memory, I remember you doing a TV ad or something like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was hugely expensive for us. Yeah, we, we helped. I think the deal was, from memory, we supplied kind of free furniture to go into a home, that a brand new home, which was being auctioned off. And... I think it was related to Channel 9, which is the TV mm. network we got here. And part of that promotional thing was that you got a free five-minute interview and it went on TV. So that was that was supposed to be just for the retail side because I imported the furniture. It was really to push that. But I got more work out of it from for restoration than I did out of retail. Yeah. So what it was telling me all the time, just stick to the restoration work yeah. and the cane supply of the raw materials rather than get into retail because anyone can do retail. And there, I had competition in those days. There was a few other shops around, but yeah. no one was doing what I was doing in restoration. So I think I learned, a, a, it cost me a bit of money and time doing it, but I think I learned the fact that I should really pursue just the restoration side and then eventually internet came out or people started talking about having a website and I jumped on pretty quick and I had to pay someone to do that. A company that helped me set up the website, I designed it all, but they did all the back end work and the promotion on Google. But every time I wanted a a change, it cost me big time. And so I think I only had it for two and a half, three years. And I quickly discovered how, I could learn how to do my own website. I think you put me in touch with Weebly at the time and um, never looked back. And if you learn those skills, which is not difficult, putting in the good keywords, keyword research, I did all that. You build up a good back end, which is the most important part, which drives traffic, as you know, and that's the key. I've never spent any more money on advertising after that. Not a cent. Not even on Google ads. They pay me. Yeah. Oops. They pay me to um, have Google ads. So I'm getting, I don't know what it is now, probably at least $200 a month just in Google ads. So it pays for that. Wow. So there's money to be made on your website too. Yeah. That's incredible. That's really interesting because I've recently done, I recently interviewed an SEO expert and I've been doing a little bit more research on uh, how to get ranked on Google. So it's really impressive for me to to speak to you who's 
okay, been in business for a long time. Perhaps the internet was kind of a, a daunting thing because there's so many different things you can do. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of people find it very challenging. But in actual fact, if you, if you understand your business and if you, you know, setting up a website these days takes uh, minutes. If you understand your business, if you know how to talk about it, then you have so much opportunity to drive traffic and drive revenue to your business. So Absolutely. that's really cool. And so if, if I'm not mistaken, you also do some video marketing or something on YouTube. Is that correct? Uh, well, I've done some many years ago. My tutors at the time when I started learning about marketing would say, give as much content as you can away for free. So I thought, well, YouTube seems to be a good spot. So I did a number of videos, uploaded it to YouTube, and that certainly drives a fair bit of traffic. And um, what are the videos or how to? Oh, or? just to do with caning, recaning the seat, how to do this. Because if I'm selling materials, people want to know how to. So you can have a written tutorial, which I give like free instructions, but it's always good to refer them to videos. A lot of people refer the video um, yeah. on how to rather than yep. reading it in text. So that's always been quite good. I haven't touched it for years, but I should. I've probably got another six or eight videos sitting on my computer somewhere, but you know, <laughs> I, I just don't get time to do it, yep. which I should. But anyway, so that works. I'd say YouTube was a, is a good spot to put free content on. Yep. And naturally Twitter, I've used Twitter a bit, uh, not so much now. Facebook is good. I often put posts up there what I've just achieved or a customer response. And of course, having the Facebook group, that's not so much driving traffic to me or gaining work, but it gives you a lot more, more credibility. I think that's a mm. big thing. So that's, that's important. And I think the videos do too. If you, if you show people that you're good at what you're doing, then it's quite easy. I mean, I can remember I didn't even have a tripod to hold the camera, I used to put the camera under my chin like this and <laughs> weave away, you know, and then the ambulance would go past and I was like, oh, sorry, and I just, I wouldn't edit it out. I didn't want it too professional. And I think that's a bit of a buzz. So, yeah. and Instagram now, I, mean, I still can't get a grip of Instagram, but I know whenever I put a post up there, I get a fair bit of feedback from it. A lot of, yeah. not just likes, but people that make inquiries. Yeah. especially on Seska Brewer chairs, those sort of things. Or recently I did a job for a customer who was in WA. She wanted Rattan to go in her caravan to do a fit out. And she put a post up and someone else saw that and then asked where she got the material. And then all of a sudden I get two caravan places. One was a mobile home. The other one was a caravan place in WA that wanted to buy the material from me because they've got customers wow. wanting to get their jobs done. So yeah. That's quite interesting. And yeah. when you post on uh, Instagram, do you use hashtags or anything? Yeah, like kind of what you do? sometimes yeah. I forget, admittedly, yeah. but Fair yeah, enough. I do. I do that. Yeah, I know how to do that now. Yeah, it's all good fun. I'm sure there's a lot more other things you can pursue out there yeah. to drive traffic. But I'm it's a one man show, really. So I've got enough work. I do drive a lot of traffic to my website. A lot of people contact me asking if they can build a new website for me. And I said, no, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, but you're not number one. I said, I'm kind of big to differ because I got every people that contact me, they said, well, I always find you on the search engine. It's always on the first page. Yeah. So 
that's just people just trying to get money out of you. So yeah. anyway, no, it's all good. But I, <laughs> one thing I always do is I'm always tweaking the website. There's always something okay. that you've missed out. So I'm always tweaking it. I'm always adding fresh content. I should be doing more to more blog, but I don't think many people go to blogs these days. You can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I've, I get very, very little traffic going to the blog. They tend to just like the Facebook. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Yeah. So I've gone off of that a bit, but yeah, I'm always tweaking it, just fine tuning the website a little bit, maybe the way something is written, written or a different picture, mm-hmm. or a little bit more easy text. Because another thing is you've got to learn, especially in my field, that let's treat everyone as being naive about this job. So you can't use technical terms. You can't say, just do this or do that. You've got to lay it out for them. So Mm. you kind of have to go down to basics, which takes a bit to do sometimes, but that's important to keep people enthusiastic about their job and making sure that the job is made as easy as possible for them to that's for mm. DIY that is, that's what I'm referring to, but yeah. yeah. I think that's often one of the biggest challenges is simplifying things. Like yeah. I mean, you're a, an expert in your field. You know, I, I'm an expert in, in marketing related things, but if I'm trying to explain to someone how to set up an email campaign or a website, I sometimes forget that not everyone knows what I would consider basic information. That's so right. so it's, it's often a very big challenge to try and actually really get to the, the crux of the problem or try to spell it out in a simple manner. And from what I understand, and this is kind of inherent across everything you've talked about is I think word of mouth has probably played a huge role in the success of your business, right? Yeah, definitely. I think anyone that goes to any business, whether it's a restaurant, a petrol station, or just a shop, and you've got someone over the other side of the counter, and it gives you a good experience and if about your product or whatever you're doing, I think you always remember that. And if you get a good service, it doesn't matter whether, if, whether it's expensive or not, if you get a good service and reliable, and you get an honest reaction, most people want to go back to that person. And because I feel that way, I want to give that experience to my customer. So I've done that from day dot and it pays off because if you do a really good job, no shortcuts, go the extra mile, always give the little bit extra if you can. Smile on your face, that doesn't hurt. And be honest, be reliable. When you say you're going to be there, give them a call before to confirm it, but you're going to be there on that time. Punctuality is very important. Politeness is important and make sure the job is done as best as you possibly can. The price, I I guess really you work that out yourself over the years, you want to be fair. And I think that's, that's the most important thing. I hate seeing business people turn around and say, Oh, look at this guy come up with this expensive four wheel drive. Oh, we should be able to charge a bit more for this guy that's wrong you're going to go backwards and i think you've got to be honest and upfront all the time so i think that pays a huge point with getting customer feedback and having people come back to you time and time again i've got customers now because i'm getting old as you can see with a gray hair saying don't retire i said well i got it one day so no 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 i don't don't i'll be coming back to you some customers have been coming to me for 20 odd years 
And you might think, well, that's stupid if their seat gets broken. But some of these people have got eight or ten seats and they might have a wild party one night. They don't care. They come back and get it fixed. Or their daughters or their son or whatever. So they, they don't go anywhere else. Not that there is anyone else, but you always get referrals back to you. And if you're yeah. a bit of a creepy person and don't do the right thing, they're not going to come back to you. They're going to find someone else to do it or get rid of the chair. So it pays dividends to be polite to your customer and do the right thing. Definitely. That's a good lesson. I think this rolls on quite well to my next question. How have you managed customer information over the years? Like, do you maintain any sort of database? And from um, memory, I remember you used to use like customer cards. Oh, that, yeah. I still have a job card, which I'll write on, and I put as much information as I, I mean, keywords, I mean, silly little things. So I've got a hopeless memory for names to start off with. But funny enough, I remember the chair that I retained or restored. And or what you ate that day. Oh, what I ate that day, exactly. <laughs> so I write things down, apart from the usual name, contact details and stuff. If I've had a conversation and that, say it's a lady who happens to have a daughter that's pregnant, when they've left, I'll make a note, daughter was pregnant, just so that I can come up in conversation again. And it triggers mm -hmm. my memory too. It might be something to do with a chair or something to do with a broader pram. And I remember Auntie May, who was 99 when she passed away and gave me the phone. I write that down. And to remember something like that when they come in, that's if I can remember and see the card, of course, that pays dividends. That's really, really good. So that's my only bit of information that I keep. I don't keep emails. I used to, but quite honestly, I'm not into email marketing campaigns because many of the customers are one-off. They get something restored or repaired. That's it. So I don't need to send them emails to, yeah. to try and promote something. So I don't need that. But what I do keep on data is all my trade customers. That's very important because... They are repeat customers. If you do the right thing from them, you know, my trade customers would be all my carpenters, joiners, interior decorators, architects. I keep all that information every now and again, I might send them a little email or I phone them up. It's even better to ask how their project went, if they had any issues. Mm. And then I keep their data. So when they phone me or email up, I've got something to recall, remember what they purchased and have a conversation always have a conversation over the phone. I prefer that rather than email initially. And it's good. That's, that's, I think it's very important to have that kind of liaison with your customers. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm in the marketing space myself and specifically marketing automation, which is about a lot of email marketing and using customer data and segments and all that sort of thing. But I think this aligns well with what you're saying is what I've seen is the the industry has moved from this very personalized service before the internet, the internet came along, then we've gone to like, you know, large email blasts of mass yeah. media type thing. And then we've moved into more automating those email blasts and things like that. And now we're moving towards you know, leveraging technology to make a more personalized experience through artificial intelligence or, or just trying to leverage all of that personal information of about behavior and things like th that you've written on a card about, uh, you know, someone's pregnant, mm. for example, using yeah. that information to, to create a digital relationship, so to speak, 
and using that at scale. But what I've also noticed is that I think the evolution is that people are now craving that one-on-one -on -one customer relationship. So it kind Definitely. of, it's gone full circle in a way. It's like, mm. okay, technology is great, but it's not ever going to be as good as a phone conversation or a one-to-one mm. -one interaction with someone. Yeah. And the customer relationship is really key across the whole thing. So I really like that whole experience that you just mentioned because it's really relevant to how the world is evolving and how marketing is evolving. I mean, I guess it depends what business you're in, but I'm fortunate mm. that I can have one-to-one -one conversations with my customers. But if you're selling a, a product where you might not need that one-to-one -one conversation. So I'm, I'm lucky and it, and it is personal because a lot of the furniture items that I have are individual unique pieces. So to be able to touch someone by talking to them about their piece of furniture that you're restoring for them, it gives them a lot of confidence that you know what you're talking about and they're in safe hands because I naturally get customers that might be a bit apprehensive about sending their furniture item to me from Waterway in New, from New South Wales and not really knowing whether I'm going to do a great job or not. I mean, they got mm -hmm. my internet stuff, which is great, but so sometimes um, having a conversation with them, I, I think it eases it all out and they, they got confident yeah. in what the, with the work that I'm going to do, which is good. That's awesome. All right. So I'm going to go back to how your business has evolved over the years. And one of the things that I find truly inspiring personally, uh, as a way that you've balanced your lifestyle, your passion and your life really is this concept of weaving around Australia. So, <laughs> yeah. so maybe you can tell me a little bit about what that is and how that came about and what people should know about it. All right. Well, a little story then. Many years ago, we went on holiday to Queensland. I don't really recall. You put a little kid's stand and we were sitting around a swimming pool and I noticed a lot of the cane furniture that was around the resort area needed attention. So tongue in cheek, I just went and saw the manager and I just said, look, I said, this is my business. What do you reckon if I could come and do all the repairs for you? And he just said, when can you start? I said, well, I wasn't expecting that answer, admittedly. I, I said, well, I'm on holiday and I haven't got anything here. And he said, well, that's stupid. He said, but if you do decide to do it, you can work on site here and you can have accommodation here and we can feed you if you want to. Because to take that furniture away from the resort, even if it was by one by one, to someone locally, if they could find someone to do that work, was a logistic nightmare to start off with. Mm -hmm. And then it's costly and la la la. So to have someone actually come to them to do the work on site was a big buzz so that kind of sowed the seed for me and because i didn't just ask that one resort uh, a few other places i went to i did exactly the same and i got the same response so fast forward quite a number of years because i couldn't do it as you boys were growing up and going to school you couldn't just take off and do that kind of thing it took time to get that kind of thing set up so one one day we decided uh, to have a holiday in Tasmania. A customer phoned me about a week prior to going to Tasmania. It was a driving holiday. And that person said, I've got these seats to regain. And I said, look, don't worry about sending them over. I'll come to you. And the girls nearly had a heart attack. So what do you mean? You're in South Australia. So no, no I'm going to come on a holiday. We're going to come in there. If you can wait another couple of weeks, 
I'll come by and I'll do the work for you. And she thought that was great. I phoned two other people that I knew in Tasmania that wanted similar kind of work. So I had three jobs. I don't care. It was a trial thing. So we did a holiday, did three jobs, could have done loads more because if I'd done a bit more research, I would have been able to find a few more jobs, but we needed a holiday. We was only there for a week or so. So that was good. So that made me then think if I set it up right, I can have a holiday because I'm not one of these people that go on holiday and sit by a swimming pool on a beach all day long. I have to do something and it's not just sightseeing, but to be out and, and to see different people, different areas where they live is a huge buzz. So fast forward, I think it was, I think it's eight trips we've done now and it's normally every second year. So 16 years ago, 15, 16 years ago, we took our first trip and we went right up to Cairns. So if anyone doesn't know where that is, that's, that's like four days drive constantly from here. So it was a long way. And we took, I think, six weeks off and nearly five and a half weeks of that was work. And how do you get the work? Once again, the internet. I just created a page on the website, mobile repair service. This is where we're going to go. This is the time when we're going to be visiting. If you're interested, fill out a form, send me some pictures. I give a quote. If it's all good, we'll let you know what our itinerary is and zigzag up the coast and when we're going to be there, keep in contact by phone. And that's it. And that's what we did. And after the first one, I loved it that much. I couldn't wait to do another one. And it's, it's a great experience, not only to see Australia for us, but also to meet lovely people and especially the country people. They were so inviting. It was wonderful. And, it, and the work was a catalyst to put it together. That was all it was. It was for me, I'm doing a service. I'll get paid for it. Fine. Didn't, I didn't care whether it was a $20 job or a $200 job. It was immaterial. It was actually getting out and seeing the people and traveling. And I had a lot of fun. And we saw a lot of Australia, places we'd never ever dream of going to. We went and saw these lovely areas. And most times we stayed with these people. That was another crazy thing. A lot of the customers would turn around and say, um, don't stay at that campsite. Come and stay, park your van there and stay with us for a couple of days if you want to. And that's what happened. So, yeah, Yeah. we've done eight trips now up and down the East Coast. We've also done Central Australia. We've been to Alice Springs and we did a big job up there. The guy didn't really want to bring his furniture down because it was quite bulky. So he said, well, if you come up for a holiday, I'll look after you. And we stayed at his place and it was great. We got to sightsee and get paid for the job at the same time. It was brilliant. Now we've got WA now. We were supposed to do that last year, but the COVID put us back there because the borders are all shut down. So we'll plan that later on next year if we can. And then I've pretty well covered every state then. Yeah. yeah. That's remarkable. Fun. It's so cool. Like you found your passion, you've created a business around it. You know, you've always loved traveling and, and road tripping. And now you've found a way to combine the two. And in, I guess as a, a bonus, you're going to places that you will probably otherwise never exactly. visited because you're going to these customers specific locations yeah uh, and yeah. yeah and it's incredible and if i'm not mistaken you have a on your website you have a, a web page or basically a call to action to saying weaving around australia and a form yeah. basically like an order a reservation form right mm-hmm. for people to submit yeah. their jobs before you take, go on holiday yeah. 
so you plan your holiday, you set up your page, notify anyone who wants to know that you're doing it. And then the jobs just flow in and then you yep. just accept the ones you want to take. Right. Pretty well. Yeah. Yep. And, and I remember you telling me a story uh, about you also get jobs whilst you're on holiday uh, having oh, booked in. They'd be parked at a campground and someone knocks on your window and so oh, I see your van wicker works and blah, blah, blah. And because I've got a, a roof rack and on top of the roof rack, we've got a pipe where we put PVC pipe and it's, we put cane strips in there and I've got Wickerworks and mobile repair service. That's the only time it's actually on the van when we're actually on the road. And so people read it and then they come and have a yarn for you and people buy material off me to take back to do the DIY or they say, are you coming back this way? Once you've been to such and such a place, if you are come and visit me here and I've got this job for you. Yeah. A lot of times we just have to knock it back because we can't do it. That's we so just great. haven't got the time. Yeah, it's it's insane. It's it's great, you know, really, but it's a win-win because if I can't do it, I sell the material or I post it to them when I get back, and that's another thing. We're still some posting out cane materials, even though we're on the road. We fill the van up with materials, and so consequently, every time the orders come in for you know, a kilo of this or a couple of coils or that, or a little bit of this, a little bit of that, rattan webbing. We pull off at the campsite and nearly every second day we're filling out the orders. We've got our credit card machine with, so we get paid for it all, write out receipts, pass it all up and go to the nearest post office and send it. Yeah. Keeps on going. Perfect. Perfect. You're always <laughs> working at it. It's not, you know, it's, I enjoy it. If I didn't enjoy it, I probably wouldn't want to do it, but it's, it's always good fun to do that yeah. yeah we've got julie my wife as you know that's really heavily involved with it and all the admin side so she's and she loves traveling too so it's a partnership we, we're yeah. both doing it it's good fun that's so yeah. good that's amazing yeah. no that's it that's it <laughs> can't wait to do another one i'm getting eager <laughs> <laughs> um it's so amazing i've told a few people about what you do and and how you've turned what you've created with weaving around Australia and, and everyone's like, wow, like that's, that's so impressive. It is. And I, I'm quite envious of what you've created, but I think a lot of people would be quite envious of the, what you've, what you've created. Can I tell you two little stories, which is quite funny. Of course. We normally travel as far North in Queensland as a place called Harvey Bay. And yep. my brother-in-law, um, lives in the place called Maryborough, which is very near to that place. So that's as far north as we normally travel. We was doing, I was doing emails this one particular evening, staying at his place. This is north, middle of Queensland, Sunshine Coast. And we get an email, someone saying, I need to get some material to do all these chair backs. Got six dining chair backs, but as much as I would love someone else to do them, because I can't find anybody up here where he works, where he lives know what posture I want to do. And so I'm reluctant to have to buy the material and, and thanks to my videos that I've got, he's learned so I'll give it a go and uh, I'll buy the material. And, you know, if you send it up to me, that'd be great. So I looked at his address and it was a place called Bundaberg. The Bundaberg is, is about two and a half, three hours drive north of where we were staying in Queensland at my brother-in-law's. So I looked at Julia, I said, do you want to go to Bundaberg next week or in a couple of days time? And there's a B 
biggest job there. I mean, six chairs is quite good. So I said, we can go there. We've never been there. We get Bundaberg rum there. That's where they produce it. So I said, it'd be worth going there, spend a day there and then come back. She said, yeah, all right then. So I done an email the fellow. I said, instead of me sending the maturity, would you like me to come and do the job? And that went by email and he went back and said, what? Aren't you in South Australia? I said, you're going to fly up here? I said, no, we're drive. So I phoned him up. I let him off the hook. I explained to him where we were. We was on a road trip. And he said, that would be absolutely amazing. So we drove up there the next day. And he was so happy that he said he put on a big dinner for us. We stayed there overnight because we had a few drinks. He put us up, did all the chairs. They're lovely, lovely people. And uh, yeah, and then we left and we did the job. So that was one little story, which is really good. And uh, I'm just trying to remember what the second one was going to be now. Uh, I forget now. See, there's lots of trouble when you get a bit old. Anyway, it might come to me a bit later. But that, it's, it's funny how things like that work. You know, yeah. it's, just, it's just crazy. All right. So I've got two more questions. All right. So oh, right. the first one is, what advice would you give to someone who's interested in turning a craft into a business? And what should they be aware of? If you've got your craft and you're, you're passionate about it, that's the first thing. You've got to be passionate about it. If, you, if you're one of these people that thinks they're really good at making pots or flower arrangements or whatever, just bear in mind what the market is, whether there's a lot of people out there doing the same thing. And I think what you've got to do is try and find a niche part of that, that maybe someone else got, or better still, that's, that you're really, really good at that makes you a little bit more unique compared to the other person that's doing that craft work. So that's the first thing. And that might be, that might be quite difficult to do sometimes, but you know, I digressed a little bit. Even whilst while building up Wickerworks, even though I thought I had a niche market, which I have, I went to a lot of network marketing uh, groups, or so I should say, to learn internet marketing. And every time I went to these gurus that were telling us, they said, oh, what do you do? I said, we could work, blah, blah. Nah, that's not quite a niche market. There's not enough numbers for that. There's not enough money for that. So we were looking for other niche markets and we were wrecking our brains out for it all until. And it never, we never go anywhere because you, it's difficult to find niche markets until one day we was at a, a, a seminar for the weekend and this guy just came out on stage, Stuart Sadow, his name is a fantastic bloke. And he just said, okay, we're all in the same, but we're all looking for something. And he just came out on stage like this. He said, everyone's looking through those holes in your hand to find that niche market you're looking for. When in fact it could well be right in front of your face. And that, kind of was a light bulb moment for me because I thought I do get out of bed every morning passionate about my job I love doing what I do there's not one day I hate not doing it it's great and and so I thought for every bit of knowledge that Julie and I learned about the internet about marketing we decided to put all that into Wickerworks and that's where we are today otherwise we may have lost it mm. and so going back onto the craft people that want to set up their own business doesn't matter what it is is if they are really like you, you enjoy what you're doing. You know, if you really love that, you're going to get along there. Sometimes it doesn't matter 
in my opinion, whether you're going to make a lot of money or not, mm. because it's your life. It's a lifestyle. And if you can make a lot of money out of it, great. But isn't it lovely to be able to go to work that you enjoy? I say so many people I know, and you probably do too, that have worked all their lives and hate their jobs, that yeah. don't enjoy going to work, sitting on a train for God knows how many hours, or in traffic jams, or in an office environment. Mm -hmm. And so I'm privileged to be able to not be in that position, but because I chose my destiny. So you have mm -hmm. to choose your own destiny. You have to do that. You can't rely on other people. You have to do it yourself. So your niche market might come by not procrastinating and not getting up every morning and trying to find something you really enjoy doing. Yeah. The money's a bonus. I mean, I don't think the money should come first. It's just, I mean, there's lots of times I do jobs. I never even think of what I earned that day or whether I made money or lost money on it. Cause yeah, I do lose money on some business jobs. Yeah. Not that often these days, but you know, you just do it because I love doing it and the money mm. and having people, pat you on the back now and again and, and give you a bit of good feedback. That's it. That's, that's all you want. And one thing I did want to say though, I learned no marketing skills and you need to do that. That would be a huge bonus yeah. and learn the internet, obviously learn how to budget. That's another good reason. Think about your overheads. That's a huge, I mean, nowadays I don't, I have very small overheads because I work from home and the internet, is all online sales. So I don't have a retail outlet anymore, which was costing me a fortune. So if you can do that, keep your overheads down really low. And I think you, you should be okay. And certainly learn some marketing skills, probably from someone like yourself. Yeah. Be a good start. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right. Last question. And it's, it's a bit of a shame because uh, this has been, Super exciting. I've loved every moment of this conversation. So thank you. But last question is, what is the future of Kane and Wicker Furniture and will it be around forever? I think so. If I can train someone that does half of what I do, there's always going to be a market for it. There's always going to be Kane and Wicker Furniture out there. They're still making it today, even though a lot of it, the trend now has gone for aluminium frames and plastic wicker, which I don't touch. I really don't touch it. Um, don't even want to know about it. But there's a lot of people that still spend money on getting their cane furniture repaired. Um, the trend in now at the moment, we can't keep up with the demand for supplying raw materials. So mm -hmm. I diversified in that avenue. So that I, a lot of people don't want to spend the money in paying someone to do it. So why not give it a go yourself? A lot of people do little small jobs, basket weavers out there galore. They all want the material. Yeah. So if you can supply the material, that's good. Is it dying? I don't think so. Demographically it's changed. I don't have as many seats in as I did before because of the cost factor. You know, when I first started doing cane seats, replacement of cane seats, they used to cost about 20, $25. Now for the same thing is, $99, you know? Mm. So, but then again, a liter of milk was probably only 90 cents. Now it's $2. So it, it's all relative, I guess. I think there's always going to be a market there. You just may have to diversify a little bit, just tweak a little bit, maybe introduce something else or, and follow yeah. the trend. This COVID situation is probably, I mean, it's, it's encouraged a lot of people who are now working from home to do more exactly. DIY projects, for example. Yeah. So they're, you know, that broken chair in the corner of the room is now more prominent 
in their life. So they're probably thinking about what they can do with their time and start taking action on that. Yeah, that's super interesting. I, I think that it will be around for a long time, but it will probably just evolve in different um, exactly. ways. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Cool. I just hope well, I can find someone that might be as close as passionate as I am to I can train up. So that's my that's my next uh, venture in the next year to try and find someone. I've got someone that's working with me now. Whether I can keep pursuing them because it's got to come from the heart, you know. Yeah. Uh, you don't want people saying, "Oh, let me take over the business." How much money are you making? Because that's the wrong attitude. You really mm. you really want someone that's to say. Well, I've always liked, I've been quite interested in cane furniture. I've, I like respiration workers and every job is different. It's not, I mean, yeah, recaining seats, but there are also many times that they're so different. So there's very few days in a week that it's repetitious. Mm. Far from it. That's, that's another unique thing. I'm not yeah. going to work like a lot of other people and they're doing the same thing day in and day out. It's always different. So it's, it's, that's fantastic. I, I hope it's around for a long time. I hope I'm around for a little bit longer doing this. Yes, I hope so, so too. I hope that answers the question. <laughs> it does. It does answer the question. Oh, and one other thing I wanted to ask is a long time ago, you took a photo of me and you used that some, for some marketing material. Is that right? Oh, I did. Yes. So what, what was the outcome of that? What Do you want me to show you now? Yeah, why not? Hang on, hang on. I think I still got it here. Oh, this is old. Look at this. There you go. <laughs> Need a good caning. So is that one of your flyers or, or what is that? That was one of the flyers. We used to have exhibitions every now and again. It okay. might be the, like the pram exhibition. That was always good. Once every two years, I did a pram exhibition. Invite all the old girls that I restored prams for to bring their prams to the showroom to show them all off and they have a little story. And I used to bake these little flyers up and leave them around in the yeah. shop. And yeah. That's how it started, that sort of stuff. Well, I think that's all I have to ask for today. But, but I'm <laughs> so, so happy. Yeah, this is really cool. It's been my favorite marketing talk so far. So thank you oh, so much for being part of it. I hope it helps someone. I hope I've given some uh, insight. Uh, good insight for people that want to pursue something for themselves but yeah 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 good fun thank you for allowing me to come on greg you're welcome all right i'll, I'll top my glass up now i'm empty for yes. a while <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks thank you for watching today's episode of marketing talks if you enjoyed the content please like and subscribe to my channel and podcast for further details on today's guest and bonus offers, please see the description below and stay tuned for the next episode.